So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to turn our attention to uh, really what is the second half of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading, though, from Romans uh, 8, 18 through 27 for our scripture passage today. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, uh, the Apostle Paul writes these words, which we no one confess simultaneously is the very word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, it is our prayer that as we come to this passage, we would have your Holy Spirit, uh, the one of whom we've actually sung this morning, who is the author of Scripture, uh, be the one who guides us and leads us, directs us, and teaches us from this passage of your word. And particularly, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our understanding to his own ministry. Uh, the passage before us speaks of what your spirit does for us. We pray that we might understand it and that we might be edified and strengthened by it and that we might rest in the truth of what your spirit does for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin this morning by referencing our message uh, last week from Psalm 71, verses 12 through 16. With respect to that passage in Psalm 71, the, the testimony of the old man, it's really the old man's psalm, uh, we posed three particular questions. We asked, what is interminable, what is infallible, and what is immutable? With respect to the first question, we recognize that what is interminable and unending is the fallen human condition, the fallen human predicament, man's inhumanity against his fellow man. This is something that does not change. It's unending. It's unrelenting. It really sums up the history of the human race, human beings in conflict with one another, often extremely violent conflict. And a significant subset of man's inhumanity against his fellow man is man's inhumanity against Christ himself, and therefore all those who would name Christ and follow Jesus. The world hates Christ, 
and therefore the world hates his disciples too. Now, just as a kind of a, a current and sad and tragic understanding of the world's conditions today, uh, there are so many messages coming out of Afghanistan uh, pointing to the fact that the Taliban specifically is searching the cell phones of those that they detained to see if there are any Bible apps or any other evidence that people are following Christ or show any kind of interest in Christianity. And, and those who do so are sadly, unfortunately, treated very, very badly. Now, the second question was about of what is infallible, so that in spite of the human condition, we do have an infallible hope. That infallible hope is in God. Uh, he does not fail. He is our continual hope, our constant hope, because God will always keep his covenant. He will always keep his commitments. He always keeps his promises to his followers. He always promises to work out all things for our ultimate good. And then the third question, what is immutable? And out of Psalm um 71 verses 15 and 16 in particular, we saw that the, the very thing that is immutable and unchangeable is the righteousness of God. Our salvation is anchored into that righteousness. And even as we uh, saw last week, uh, what that righteousness or how that righteousness is ultimately revealed is in Christ. Uh, Jesus is the basis and guarantee of our salvation, his righteousness. Now, we come to this New Testament passage. And really, there's part here we didn't read. We didn't read from verses 28 to 39. But in this whole passage, verses 18 through 39, but in particular, beginning at verse 26 through 39, we have revealed for us what might be designated as uh, the central and principal ministries of God himself laid out according to the nature of the Trinity and then applied to our Christian lives and to redemption. So, for instance, verses 26 and 27 speak to the work of the Holy Spirit. Verses 28, 29, 30, then moving into the latter part, speak of the work of God the Father. And then beginning, uh, really, verse 31, 32, to the rest of the chapter, the work of the Holy Spirit. And in this, we have the Apostle Paul describing the particular saving and preserving operations of the triune God in terms of, first, what the Holy Spirit is doing, secondly, what God the Father is doing, and then thirdly, what the Son of God is doing, each with respect to our salvation. Now, it's remarkable, and yet it makes perfect sense, that we can see God in his triune nature uh, addressing these same three concerns, these same three questions, which is to say that in this passage from 18 through 39, God addresses what is interminable. God addresses what is infallible. God addresses what is immutable. And we'll make that clear. We'll chart that out in the weeks ahead. But immediately before us for today, we're going to be looking at how this works out in terms of the working of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll consider the work of the Son. The third week, we'll consider the work. I mean, next week, the work of the Father the third week, the work of the Son, and how all these work together to, as it were, expand upon what we saw in Psalm 71. How the working of the triune God addresses what is interminable, what is infallible, and what is immutable. 
And that's why the sermon title today is a continuation of last week's message. It's God's kingdom is forever. This is part two. Next week will be part three. The week after that, part four. Now today, the question before us, what is interminable? Uh, now, with the biblical response to this, as we find into this passage, the very thing that's interminable, unending, unceasing, is the intercession of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the unceasing, unending, always for us, interminable intercession of the Holy Spirit on behalf of his people. And so we can state our theme this way for this message. Although in our current context and really throughout human history, uh, what has been interminable has been the evil of man's inhumanity to his fellow man. This is always the unceasing human predicament. We who are un, we who are believers have the unceasing support of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to appreciate that this continues to be a kingdom theme. Uh, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is kingdom work. And we can reference both the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself to substantiate that idea. Because later on in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is going to say this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or if we look to the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus says in John chapter 3, both verse 3, verse 5, uh, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this ought to remind us that with respect to the New Testament, even where kingdom language isn't apparent, where kingdom language isn't being specifically used, the reality of the kingdom of God is still at work. It is still present. Uh, all that Paul says about God, about the working of the Trinity and our salvation and in living out our lives by faith, this is all about the kingdom of God. Now, specifically then, to follow the direction of Paul's thought in this passage in our text, we can organize our points into these three main ideas. We can speak of the fallen human condition. We can speak of the need for help from heaven. And then we can see how Paul describes for us the Spirit's intervention and intercession on our behalf. And once again, these three points explain the main idea, the big idea, that although we face the interminable evil of man's inhumanity to his fellow man, as believers, we have the unceasing support of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does for us is unceasing on our behalf. So let's begin with the fallen human condition. And here I want to reference, first of all, verse 26 because there Paul mentions the idea of weakness, human weakness, our weakness, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we have to confess and acknowledge that this is part of the fallen human condition. But earlier in this passage, 
uh, back in verses 18 through 25, the apostle describes the fallen condition of the whole creation. And he places the suffering of Christians and therefore the weakness that we as Christians experience within that larger context. So look at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings Paul refers to here are the sufferings that we experience as Christians, uh, which we know arise from the human predicament, which we know arise out of man's inhumanity to his fellow man, uh, and we know that this is the history of the world. But then Paul goes on to connect this suffering to the larger picture of the whole fallenness of creation. So look at what he says in verses 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul is describing this fallen condition of creation, which we know took place in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sinned, God cursed the ground. And this is why the whole world is not as God originally created it. It's in bondage to corruption. It's why we know that the whole human race is not as God originally created us. Uh, we are likewise in bondage to corruption, to a moral and spiritual corruption. And of course, again, that's the source of man's inhumanity to his fellow man. This is what creates a significant part of the suffering that believers experience in this world. So coming back to verse 26, Paul describes the actual suffering of Christians with another word and with another concern. Paul speaks of our weakness. We have this, quote, weakness that the Spirit helps us with. It is a weakness that we have because we are ourselves part of this fallen world, a fallen world that stands opposed to us as Christians. It's a world that brings so much into our lives that we often do not know how to process what's going on, we don't know how to think about everything that's going on, which then, of course, translates into this. We don't know how to pray about what's going on. This is the particular weakness that Paul now considers. It is a weakness that's common to all of us as Christians, the Apostle Paul included. Now, mentioning the Apostle Paul, whom we think as the most sanctified of all the biblical writers, and thinking about the Apostle Paul and connection with weakness, we need to appreciate how Paul further describes this with respect to all Christians and then even with respect to himself. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he speaks of believers as jars of clay or other translations, earthen vessels. The way he expresses this according to the ESV is this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul is telling us that this treasure of salvation, which the earlier verses speak to the light of the glory of God, which God has caused to shine into our lives, 
that that treasure of salvation has been placed in clay pots, you know, things that are weak and disposable and easily broken, in order to show that God's own power and God's own glory manifests itself through our weakness. This means that God is not going to change us in this life from being jars of clay. God is not going to eliminate this weakness that Paul is speaking of in verse 26. And again, Paul is going to demonstrate this later in 2 Corinthians in terms of his own life and sufferings as an apostle. How God doesn't even rescue him from the suffering and condition of his own weakness. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he responds that how he had sought deliverance from that which was causing uh, physical weakness in his own life. Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds to this, what Jesus said, by saying to the church, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we have to conclude from this that we as believers have a weakness that can't be denied. We also have to recognize that this particular weakness is something that's not going to be sanctified away. It is part and parcel of our condition here in this world as Christians. It's part of the suffering of this world and suffering in this world because of the unending human predicament. But it's something that is part of what we are and what we will experience all throughout our life in this world. But here's the good news. The good news of what Paul says in verse 26. This weakness is the very context and the very condition uh, that the work of the Holy Spirit addresses. Our weakness is the context in which the Holy Spirit is active on our behalf in his interminable sovereign ministry of prayer. Now that leads us then to our second point, uh, the need for help from heaven. The key idea that Paul is teaching in verses 26 and 27 is the necessity of prayer. But that necessity is connected to the Holy Spirit. Now, recall, of course, that Paul is going to assume we are children of God and therefore we're going to pray. Uh, earlier in this chapter, back in chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says this about our status as Christians. He says, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Basically, Paul is saying that if we're true Christians, we have the Holy Spirit as a spirit of adoption, and therefore, having the spirit of adoption, we're going to be moved to call upon God as our Father. But there is this problem as we've noted, stated in verse 26, that we have this ignorance about what we should pray for. Paul says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So even though there were children of God, and even though we have the spirit of adoption, and by that we cry out, Abba, Father, 
in the midst of our sufferings and challenges and sorrows and complaints with respect to this world, we are ignorant of exactly what to pray for. You and I have all experienced this. You know, people ask us to pray for them all the time, and that's the right thing to do. But then we will often wonder, am I supposed to pray for God to deliver them from this trial? Or am I supposed to pray for God to deliver them through this trial? Because we know that trials are spoken of in the New Testament as the very thing that forms the sanctified character in us. We know that trials are the very things that that tests our faith, and a tested faith is, is of great value to God. So we frequently do not know exactly or even somewhat generally how to pray and what to pray for. If this is true with respect to others, it's very true with respect to ourselves. Yet this very weakness with respect to prayer is the special arena of the Spirit's own work as Paul teaches us here. Now, it's, it's good for us to note that there's something very countercultural in what the Apostle Paul is teaching. This matter of the connection between our ignorance and our prayers. The great American theologian uh, Charles Hodge of the 19th century, he is one of the great men of the old Princeton seminary tradition. He points out that the, that the pagan Greeks, uh, the philosophers in particular, of which uh, Professor Hodge cites two of them, Diogenes and Pythagoras, uh, they said that ignorance on the part of human beings is the very reason why men should not pray. Since we cannot discern what is truly best for us, we ought not to pray at all. We ought to just simply remain silent. Now, this shows something of the darkness of the pagan world during the time in which the gospel of grace and the revelation of God's work through Christ came into the Roman Empire. Because instead of our ignorance putting a seal of silence over our lips, the Apostle Paul is telling us that's the very condition into which the Spirit comes to do his work for us. In response to our weakness, we actually receive the help of God from heaven. Or in other words, our weakness means we must have a greater dependence upon God. But in that greater dependence of God, uh, where we have this weakness, where we don't know exactly what to pray for as we ought, the Holy Spirit himself is involved in his ministry on our behalf. We have this tremendous necessity for prayer that we need to be praying, but we don't know how to pray but it's the prayer of the Holy Spirit which we most deeply and ultimately need. Paul is saying we must have this help from heaven, but this help from heaven is necessarily a ministry of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. And then for our third and, and final big point, Paul goes on to explain how the Spirit intervenes and intercedes for us with respect to this ministry of prayer. Now, we can best break this down into two parts, because Paul relates the Spirit's ministry to us in two ways. 
First would be the Spirit's work in us, and then secondly, the Spirit's work for us. Now, with respect to the Spirit's work in us, again, I want to reference that earlier section of chapter 8, around verse 15, 16, where Paul says there that the Holy Spirit works in us to pray, quote, Abba, Father. That is, the Holy Spirit prompts us to call upon God as our Heavenly Father and to place our trust and childlike confidence in God as our Father and to come to Him in that way. Now, this is probably the, the signal most uh, blessed benefit of the doctrine of adoption and coming to understand the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption, that God truly and rightly calls us His children that we have this place of safety, this place of security, and truly a place of significance and belonging to God's family. And when we understand this, that we're children in the house of our Heavenly Father, this creates in us the best of all possible attitudes and approaches to prayer. You know, that of like a small child coming to a very loving and generous father. However, just like little children often do not have the wisdom or the vocabulary to make their wants and needs known to their Heavenly Father, likewise, we do not know how we ought to pray. And so then we have the Spirit's work for us, the Spirit's intercession. The Spirit, again, comes to help us in the very condition of our weakness and to speak and to pray on our behalf. Now, we can break this down at least in four particular ways that are significant to our understanding. First, we need to remind ourselves of what is an intercessor biblically. Uh, the word itself, whether it's in John chapter 14, 15, 16, where it occurs, or other parts of the New Testament where it occurs, the, the concept of, of the parakaleo, the intercessor, is one of being an advocate. It's one who comes and speaks on behalf of another. So when the Spirit is praying for us, when the Spirit is interceding for us, he is advocating on our behalf. But there's something a bit more in the New Testament understanding of advocacy, of intercession. And once again, Charles Hodge uh, is helpful in pointing out that in the ancient world, the office of an advocate was not only to plead on behalf of one's client, but it was the special job of the advocate to dictate to his clients what they should say and how best to present their cause. And Hodge maintains that we need to bring this understanding to this passage as well. And so the implication would be this. The Holy Spirit not only prays for us, but the Holy Spirit himself teaches us how to pray, which would be to say that all true prayer out of us uh, come, comes by the teaching and guiding and illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Spirit both prays for us and the Spirit teaches us how to pray. And then we have, secondly, Paul's description of the Spirit's intercession. Uh, he says the Spirit's intercession is according to the ESV translation, groaning too deep for words. 
Now, this is interesting that the word groaning is used here because earlier Paul spoke of the whole creation groaning and then Paul spoke of Christians also groaning and the world groans because of the present state of the world. It's under the curse. It's in a fallen state of corruption. And we ourselves groan because we are still waiting for the final episode of our salvation to come and we have to deal with our continuing struggles with the world and with indwelling sin. But Paul uses that same word here, groaning, to describe something that the Spirit does. Obviously, the groaning of the Spirit cannot be as any sign of any kind of weakness or frailty within the Holy Spirit. It, it can't be some kind of groaning because in any way the Spirit is suffering because of the fallenness of the world or the Spirit is suffering because of our own fallenness. So, if the spirit groans, but not for the same reason, what then would it be for the spirit to groan? What could that possibly mean? What can we possibly attach as a meaning to the spirit's groaning on our behalf, a groaning that is too deep for words? Well, the best explanation would draw an analogy with Jesus as our high priest just as we are told in Scripture, specifically the book of Hebrews, that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. So here we would see that the attitude of intercession on behalf of the Spirit for us is with sympathy with our weaknesses, sympathy with our struggles, sympathy with the uh, sufferings that we experience in this world. And then thirdly, the Spirit's intercession is a direct communication with the Father. Uh, the concept of too deep for words is essentially the concept of being wordless. It is verbally inexpressible with groans that are not expressed in words. Now, here are the various translations that all try to capture this. So the New American Standard and the ESV say too deep for words. The old King James says, which cannot be uttered. The NIV says that words cannot express. The idea is that these sympathetic groans are inexpressible. But Dr. John Stott, theologian, pastor, commentator, would point out that in some sense these translations, strictly speaking, suffer from some inaccuracy. Because the key word in the New Testament that's translated in these various ways simply means wordless. Paul says that these these are groanings which are wordless, uh, simply unexpressed rather than inexpressible. And uh, John Stott would go on to tie that to the nature of the relationship between the Spirit's ability to communicate with the Father and the Father's ability to communicate with the Spirit, how their communication is infallible uh, for the reason that Paul mentions in verse 27. Paul says that God the Father is described as the one who searches the hearts. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit. The Father knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, we can safely say that neither human language nor any kind of angelic language nor any kind of uttered or spoken language is ever necessary within the Trinity. 
The members of the Trinity know each other's minds perfectly, which is to say, as the Holy Spirit prays for us as our advocate, groaning and yet not using words, the Father immediately, the Father instantly knows what the Spirit is asking on our behalf. And then, fourthly, connected to this, uh, we're told that the Spirit's intercession is according to the Father's will. Now, the last phrase of verse 27, Paul calls the believers saints. And this is significant. Paul begins by noting our weaknesses, verse 26, how we still have within us the contamination of the fall, even indwelling sin. Yet, to remind us of the grace of our salvation and our identity in Christ, he calls us saints, holy ones, ones who are set apart by God for himself, and that's a sweet reminder. Now, this final thought about the Spirit advocating for us, who are now called saints, according to the will of God the Father, is a great consolation to us. We pray so imperfectly. Yet we also know the scriptures teach us that if we ask anything according to God's will, God hears us and we receive that for which we ask. But now we're told that the spirit always intercedes according to God's will. He makes no mistakes in what he asks. He never pleads for something foolish. He never pleads for anything that is ever anything less than the best for us. On our part, we pray and our minds wander. The Spirit prays, his mind never wanders. We pray and our minds wonder, is God hearing me? Is God sympathetic to my pleas? But the Spirit prays and he never wonders whether God is hearing him, for God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, and when the Spirit prays for us with the greatest sympathy for our struggles and circumstances and deepest needs, and when he petitions for us, it is always according to God's holy and highest good for us. Now, I would say that in many ways this is reflected in that hymn we sang about the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about the third stanza itself, where the hymn writer says, he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, is the living author, wakes to life the sacred word, reads with us its holy pages, and reveals our risen Lord. He it is who works within us, teaching rebel hearts to pray. He whose holy intercessions rise for us both night and day, and this is a great message to us. It's a great message for us who know that we are, in fact, incredibly weak in our lives of prayer. Knowing that we often, so often, do not know how to pray as we ought to pray. So often, so very aware of our weakness in this regard. And to realize now that that's the very arena in which the sovereign Holy Spirit intercedes for us.
And the wonderful conclusion is there is no impediment to our life of prayer when we come to a point of not understanding at all how we should even pray. Because then we turn and think and meditate and rest upon what Paul declares to us here. That we have the Holy Spirit who unceasingly is praying for us. Now, to conclude, I want to once again visit the title of Oswald Chambers' famous devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. There's no question that it's our kingdom calling as Christians to give God our utmost for his highest. It is our deepest calling to live to the utmost for the glory of God. But this great section of the book of Romans sets forth something that is even more basic to the Christian life, something even more fundamental and significant than we as Christians giving our utmost for the glory of God. It is, in fact, the gospel truth that God in his triune nature gives his utmost for our highest good. Our salvation is a working out of God's own kingdom, where in every respect of our salvation, God is king. He's the sovereign. He's the one who began a good work in us. He's the one who finishes his good work in us. And he's the one who indwells us by his Holy Spirit, the one who works in us by his Spirit to will and to do his good pleasure. He is the one who is the Holy Spirit, the one who enables us to recognize and to see and to trust. The Holy Spirit prays for us. It's an unending unceasing, interminable, sympathetic intercession for us in the midst of all of the sufferings of this life. And in this great truth, we should abide and rest. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God and Father, we want to thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit for all that your spirit does in us and for us. And we would pray that knowing this, understanding this, seeing this, and then believing and trusting in this, our own lives of prayer would become stronger. But even in the recognition of how weak we are in terms of our prayers, a weakness that we will always possess in some manner. That we would rest in what your spirit does for us, for our ultimate good. Always interceding for us in accordance with your sovereign will for us, Father. Help us to rest in this. Because all of this is to the work of Christ, when his work upon the cross purchased us the fullness of our salvation and mediates to us all the great work, Father, that you as God, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do on our behalf. May we rest in this. In Jesus' name, amen.